0: Good morning it's Wednesday the 28th of February and this is Govindrajathi Raj broadcasting from Mumbai India's financial capital presently reeling under pretty high temperatures Our top stories and themes for the day The stock markets recover somewhat but broadly await signals and economic data India's financial regulators are increasingly wary of market risks How company promoters were the largest sellers of their holdings in 2023 India's purchasing power is low. How much so is the question. Pharmaceutical multinationals are exiting the Indian market, but stepping up bets on Indian talent.
1: This is a core report
2: with Govindraj Athiraj.
0: Markets struggle for direction. So, the good news is that global markets are behaving similarly at this point all over as they have done in the past as well. US equity futures were steady to positive again overnight as most investors were holding back for fresh economic data and Federal Reserve signals on the timing and prospects of interest rate cuts in the United States, which, of course, is most likely not happening in March as was fervently hoped and expected last month. Now, people are pegging their hopes on cuts in June or even later. Back home, the stock markets were mostly steady for most of the trading session on Tuesday but picked up some steam towards the end of the trading day with the BSE Sensex gaining 305 points to settle at 73,095 while the Nifty 50 closed 76 points higher at 22,198. Tata Motors, which might do an initial public offer or IPO of its electric vehicles business separately going by reports, led the markets to yesterday. Tata Motors has an over 80% share of the passenger vehicle market in electric. Now, the listing could be worth over 8,000 crores going by reports in business line and would be timed depending on when it finally comes with Hyundai India's IPO, making it at least two car majors going public in near proximity. though so Hyundai's IPO might be worth about $3 billion, or that's about two to three times the size of Tata's electric project and could be out before the end of the year going by reports once again. Now, we spoke of Asian Paints and Grasim yesterday, and in a somewhat similar vein, the auto sector is also seeing some big moves by old players, though with some variations, of course, including the fact that for the Tatas, its electric business is housed differently and is obviously new, while the parent has been around since 1945, more than 75 years, which is just exactly like Asian Paints and Grasim. I therefore and hereby declare it a 75-year itch. Market regulators increasingly wary of risk. So, the broader theme is that the financial regulators, whether the Reserve Bank of India and now the Securities and Exchange Board of India, are increasingly wary of risk and overexposure in the markets, whether in the form of small loans, that's the Reserve Bank, or purchase of stocks and shares, in the case of the Securities and Exchange Board of India or SEBI. And sometimes, arguably, it is the borrowing that is leading to the purchase of stocks, including many in the more conceptually high-risk, small-cap stock zone, which is people are taking loans to buy shares. Now, this is not new at all, but the proportion or the intensity might be different or higher, and that might be, among other things, worrying the regulators. Reuters is reporting that SEBI has asked asset managers to give investors more information about the risks associated with their small and mid-cap funds. This could kick in as soon as April. Small and mid-sized funds have seen high inflows, causing concern among authorities about how they could hold up in the event of a sharp market sell-off. The SEBI has been reviewing stress tests conducted by such funds, sources told Reuters. The funds are being asked to disclose how long it might take to accommodate large redemptions which impact large outflows, which could have an effect on the value of the portfolio and how much cash and liquid assets the fund holds to meet such outflows. A CIO in a mutual fund told Reuters that investment committees were always aware of the liquidity challenges, but investors were not. Once this information is available to them, they can compare each fund. The Association of Mutual Funds in India, which is working with SEBI, is apparently proposing a standardized format for the disclosure of risk. Now, why is the risk, at least in this case, important? Reuters has computed this for us, saying that the Nifty Small Cap 250 index has risen 71% over the past 52 weeks while the nifty mid-cap 100 index has risen 64%. Now, contrast this with the nifty 50's 28% rise, which is, of course, no small or low number either. So here's the crux of it. Mutual funds tend to keep about 1% to 5% of their assets in cash as a prudent measure to meet outflows, and there is no minimum regulatory requirement as such. Now, you could, of course, decide whether that 1% to 5% is enough in the fund that you put your money in or not. Promoters are the largest sellers of stock last year. Last year was an interesting year as it saw some pretty large swings inwards in terms of fund flows. First, the sales. Some $42 billion worth of stock were sold by promoters, foreign investors, and individuals in the last calendar year, says a new report from ICICI Securities. The selling was balanced or countered by foreign portfolio investors again and mutual funds who pumped in about $21 billion each or $42 billion in all into Indian stocks to counterbalance the sell-off. Now, promoters led those sellers with about 40% of the equity basket, other foreign investors 38% and individual traders 16%. Insurance companies were at about 6%. Now obviously for every seller, there must be a buyer and vice versa. The only thing that's worth noting in some ways is that the proportion of promoters seems a little high. In itself, there's nothing unusual or wrong and promoters are known to sell during peaks as they should, particularly if they've held those shares for a long time, maybe several years or even decades. The wealth effect that it generates is obviously a good market economy indicator because it incentivizes entrepreneurship and good quality management based on performance. The only concern is when promoters sell too much or more than what the market feels comfortable with And this is of course something that institutional investors track closely as do investors who are quite or rather veterans in the market the other interesting point from last year's data is that foreign institutional investor holding in india is now down to a decadal low of about 16.3 percent a trend we had discussed and showcased once again via a icici securities report a few months ago this obviously means that fpis unlike the previous almost three decades do not have the market-moving capability anymore where their buying or selling would trigger all-round and similar actions. So the balancing obviously has come in from domestic institutional investors and domestic investments. In 2024 so far, foreign portfolio investors have been net sellers of about $3.5 billion, while domestic investors have been buyers of about $5.6 billion of Indian stocks. Now, there are several areas where foreign portfolio investors are buying and selling, which is always useful to note and follow, even if you don't actually follow them. And this was seen through 2023, but somewhat changed in 2024. For example, they sold financials in 2023, and that was quite apparent in some of the stock price movements towards the end of last year, and have now flipped. So, which means that now they are buying those financials. Similarly, IT or information technology services is seeing more consistent buying. But the one sector that's seeing fairly consistent selling by foreign portfolio investors is fast-moving consumer goods or consumer products, and we'll come to that momentarily. I reached out to ICICI Securities Equity Strategist Vinod Karki, and I began by asking him, what are these data points were the most significant or interesting to him last year, and which of them did he see a continuation of sorts this year?
1: If you see last year, one thing that comes to our mind is that the narrative has been that fpis have been sellers but if you look at the calendar year 23 if you compare fpis versus mutual funds both have been net buyers in stocks of around 21 billion each so that's a buying of almost 42 billion from the two largest institutions which participate in equities. so that's point one but while these aggregate numbers are available for these institutions We don't know who are the sellers on the other side of the trade because there's been a buying of 42 billion. So, obviously, someone sold 42 billion worth of stocks. So, that was interesting for us when we used a sample of 1,000 companies. Obviously, we didn't have the entire aggregate data dissected into flows by these, I mean, the sellers. But we tried to analyze that. And it seems that the largest chunk of selling was from the promoters. And the other foreign investors, which are largely classified as FDIs and others, basically. And surprisingly, individuals into direct equities were sellers also. And a small marginal selling by insurance companies.
0: So promoters, you're saying is the largest category of sellers last year from your sample?
1: Yes. The top thousand companies. Yes.
0: And would this be selling of shares held for a period of time or would it be you know ipo
1: linked for this thousand companies that we have considered we have not looked at any ipo companies we have just looked at companies which were existing which had this for the last two calendar year period but any follow on issuances obviously would be captured any stake sale by any promoter would be captured in fact the reverse where investors sell in a buyback that would also be considered so all Transactions with shareholders, including buybacks, share issuances, will also be considered in this intro Amount adds are up to? So, see, the, the number which is sacrosanct, we know, is at the aggregate level that 21 billion each has been bought by FPI's mutual funds. These are implied flows, basically. This, we just take the shareholding data of companies at the start of the year, at the end of the year, the number of shares which move from one investor to another. And using average prices, we kind of get implied flows, basically. So the more important number is the composition of selling, basically, or buying. So the composition is very clear that the FPS mutual funds were the largest buyers. The other ones I talked about were the largest sellers. What it also allows us to do, which is not possible to do when you get this aggregate flows numbers, is to see where the buying-selling within large-mid-small caps has happened, basically. That's only possible through this analysis, which also tells us that the buying by mutual funds and FPIs in mid and small actually exceeded their buying in large caps during CY23. That was another highlight of this data point. And
0: would you have a sense how this could have been in 22?
1: So I can't offhand remember all that. But if you remember... In 22, 21, there was a huge interest rate uh, hike fear, basically. And that point in time, FPS obviously were sellers in that period.
0: Right. And promoters, do we have a sense? I mean, or is it sort of more logical that, you know, when markets reach peaks like this, a lot of promoters
1: do cash out? Looks like from the data and obviously, you know, you have to remember that if there is buying by a certain segment of investors, obviously there has to be selling on the other side, you know, then only there is buying basically. So at any point in time, there will be bid and ask depending on who is more optimistic and someone who feels that he can cash out. So if there is huge buying from institutions like mutual fund and FPR, obviously someone has to sell. So it's more of technical also at times.
0: Right. No, but I think in this case, the question is about promoters. Not that it's a bad thing, but I mean, they're obviously not regular investors because their people most likely have been with the company from the beginning and maybe unloaded large amounts or some amounts in 2023 because
1: of the peaks in the market. That's true. That's true. It's possible that way that they see that they're getting good value out of uh, selling at this point in time. But obviously, you have to remember that these promoters, shaves off a few percentage. I mean, if someone is holding 70%, if it goes to 68%, it uh, doesn't tell you anything about the commitment towards the company. Just that maybe he wants to cash out a bit. He's clear at higher prices.
0: I guess the inference is that there has been a lot of wealth created in the hands of a few people as opposed to, let's say, overall market gains resulting in appreciation of wealth and so on,
1: isn't it? If the market prices are rising, Overall, I mean, especially in the broader markets, then obviously a wider set of investors are feeling wealthier. There's no doubt about that. If you remember, there was a time three, four years ago when we used to complain that uh, just a handful of stocks are moving the whole index and nothing, no participation in the broader markets. I think that has changed significantly. Now the participation is quite wider. So a lot of people would be feeling wealthy at this point in time.
0: Now the other interesting point is that foreign institutional investors, and this is a report that you put out earlier as well, have come down further in their holding in the Indian markets. One is what is the number, and what is the significance of this number relative to everything else?
1: So what happened? Why this selling off late in post in CY24 till date? You have to remember that there was early celebrations that uh, the interest rate cycle would start falling fast in u.s and other developed markets but uh, the recent data suggests that the u.s economy especially is quite robust and now the thinking is that the rates will be higher for longer obviously they will moderate at some point in time but they can remain higher for longer for some more time so that i think has kind of been a little bit of a surprise which may have resulted in these outflows that we saw in jan feb i think that is one reason why the fbi holding fell a little more of Indian equities. But a bigger reason in our view is that lowest holding by any investor class is uh, from FPIs into small caps, basically. So they hold lesser of small caps in India compared to the other investors. You know that the significant outperformance has been from small and micro-caps where they have little holding. So statistically, that's resulting in uh, their holding in overall Indian equity. So there we're talking about the overall Indian equities, the, all the 3,000-odd companies which are listed. So there, obviously, they're seeing a dip. And also the portfolio orientation, they have been traditionally big owners of high-quality companies, which off late, you, have, you must have seen that the high-quality growth companies, have not been outperforming. It's mostly the cyclical companies, value companies, PSUs and others which have been outperforming. So a combination of a little bit of selling in C24 uh, till date, lower location towards small micro and overall general portfolio location where their assets are not outperforming, I think that's resulting in their shareholding falling
0: So if you want to look at both foreign investors and domestic institutional investors, what are the sectors you would say broadly where selling, let's say, happened in 23 or started in 23, maybe towards the second half and then continues into 24? For example, I think last financials, discretionary, fast-moving consumer goods, these were the sectors where a lot of selling happened towards the end of 23 and to some extent has continued into 24, but that's over to you. Which sectors continue to see more inflow and which sectors continue to see more outflow?
1: Yeah, so if you look at it from a FPI perspective, so far in twenty four, the selling is into financials largely, where till about past three quarters, if you see in FOI 24, till about December, they were buyers. So that's, I think, a trend which is changed. Discretionary consumption, again, there has been some se- selling this period and past three quarters be- before that has been buying. So, of so these sectors where it has flipped, but for example, FMCG, they continue to sell in this calendar year and the past two quarters also they were selling. IT, they continue to buy and they were buyers in the past two quarters before this. So there are times where there has been continuation of a trend and some trends are broken like telecom, they continue to buy. They were buyers. So these are some of the things where FPI's, VC's especially. For the mutual fund guys, I think banks, I think private banks, they have been continued to buy, were buyers earlier in the past two quarters also. So no major difference. Uh, in general, they've been buyers anyways. So uh, you know, this is how we're seeing this trend. Right. We Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Govind.
0: India's purchasing power over the last decade. One takeaway from the most recent monthly per capita expenditure estimates or household consumption expenditure survey of the government of India released after more than a decade is the relatively low purchasing power of most Indians. Nearly four-fifths of Indians in rural areas consume less than Rs. 4,500 worth of goods and services per month or less than Rs. 54,000 per year. The consumption of their urban counterparts is less than Rs. 7,700 per month or Rs. 92,000 per year. Which means that while expenditure levels have gone up in the last decade or so, and sharply perhaps, the actual numbers are not that high or what you may have expected at least intuitively. The survey not surprisingly has got several reactions of different kinds. It was released on Saturday evening or over the weekend so people are still processing it and there is a more comprehensive report coming from the government itself. So the larger question is how much better off are Indians today as compared to the past? The answer to that is that they are better off and of course, in the manner in how and what they're consuming as well. For instance, as incomes have increased, there are clear shifts in kinds of food consumed or overall food expenditure giving away to discretionary spending. I reached out to TK Arun, Senior Economic Journalist and columnist, and I began by asking him, as he had very recently, how he was computing the latest numbers on household expenditure basis his most recent article and column
2: in Money Control. The data provided by the NSSO surveys report itself shows that The income levels are so low in the lowest five percentile. The income is 1373 in rural areas and 2001 rupees in the urban area. This is not about monthly per capita expenditure. Dismal, right? And I calculated that a male whose salary is, say, between 15,000 and 20,000 per month and whose husband also earns rather pretty much the same amount would have a household income. And would be spending per capita this amount which is the seventy to eighty percentile seven six seven three in the urban areas, with a family of four spending thirty two thousand rupees, and she would belong to the be at least the seventy fifth percentile of our income category. Which means she is there among the top twenty five percent of India's spending population so That is the level of purchasing power we have. That doesn't show us in a very good light, although we write post that we are in the the first largest economy, etc. It shows our per capita incomes are really poor. And for most people, those incomes are really, really bad. So, two separate questions, TK. One is,
0: there is a change, isn't it? But between the last time this survey was done, which is about 12 years ago, and today, as in, there's been a doubling and tripling of incomes, both in
2: rural and urban areas. And there is greater convergence which is correct and which is welcome. But these are relatively, you know, minor improvements that should not actually make us very happy. If you look at the table for urban and rural incomes for the different states, you will see, you will be surprised to see how only a state like Gujarat says, or even a state like Maharashtra says. Now, these are very industrial states, right? But even these states come across very, very poorly. Whereas a state like Kerala, who is overall income levels are not great. It comes across much better. See, so look at the income. during 2022-23 in Gujarat. The monthly per capita expenditure in rural area is three thousand seven hundred ninety-eight rupees, whereas in Kerala it is five thousand nine hundred twenty-four rupees. In Gujarat, urban per capita expenditure is six thousand six hundred twenty-one rupees. In Kerala, it is seven thousand seventy rupees. Now. We celebrate the Gujarat model as an example of dynamic growth and entrepreneurial, you Whereas Kerala is condemned as a state that is anti-industry, which was not um, fiscally responsible and all that. But look at the state of the welfare of people. The major narrative of self congratulation that we seem to go through right now, that needs to be examined. But this is relative, isn't it? I mean...
0: Kerala today, if it's high, would have been high 10 years ago? Or let's say, okay, let's put this survey aside. Would have anything have changed dramatically in the last few years for either state? I mean, I'm, my question is really, wouldn't most of this be or have been linear?
2: No. So Kerala used to be the, the national average for quite some time. Whereas now it has caught up in the, so the national average. Despite being industrially adverse in terms of industrial relations and foreign direct investment and all that.
0: Kerala benefits from remittances, I mean, which has obviously been rising.
2: So remittances grew from people who have migrated to work outside, right? And they have been able to migrate because Kerala has invested in human capital by spending large amount of proportions of the state budget on education and healthcare and nurtured human capital, which not finding an avenue for deployment in the state itself, has migrated outside and is sending money back home. How are you seeing the difference between
0: the bottom 5%, let's say, and the top 5% as according to this survey? So, there's 10 times in both cases, rural as well as I, was. And how, I mean, And how is that in contrast to what it could have been? Because I have not
2: seen the last figures, which is 2010-11. If you look at these figures are actually not all that reliable, given in the past conservative surveys. If you multiply this per capita consumption figure with the population in the rural areas and the population in urban areas for urban consumption and add them up, these total consumption figures will actually account for some 60% of the consumption shown in your national income account. In your GDP data, you have a figure for government consumption. That primary consumption expenditure is way larger than the consumption captured by NSSO surveys. And this share that is captured has been declining over the years. I suspect it has come down even more sharply this time around. Because we live in a time when ever increasing numbers of billionaires, dollar billionaires in this country, when you have destination weddings and other kinds of lavish consumption taking place, at least for certain sections of society. So to say that the... Per capita income for the highest percentile is only 20,000 rupees. It seems slightly in a feather shape. What about this data set do you think needs more work or more insight? These consumption expenditures should capture much larger share of the consumption shown in the national income accounts. It can't be in the region of 60% of below. It should be at least 85 to 90%. If that doesn't happen, we can't rely upon these figures to either compute the degree of inequality or the degree of welfare. Those who are relatively poor, their incomes might be better reflected in these consumer expenditures. So I think the design of the subway and the questions they ask and the attention to detail in compiling, analyzing the data, they all these for simple.
0: Thank you so much for joining me.
2: So Most welcome.
0: Pharma companies are pulling out of the Indian market but betting on Indian talent. Bristol Myers Squibb, or BMS, has said it will expand its research and development presence in India and expects its newly inaugurated Hyderabad facility to become its largest unit outside the United States by 2025, according to Reuters. This 100 million facility, inaugurated by its CEO Christopher Bonner on Monday, is expected to employ about 1,500 people and will be used to enhance its drug development through the use of digital technologies and AI. Bristol Myers also operates a research and development centre in Bangalore in partnership with the Biocon Group's Syngene International. The cancer focused US drug maker is currently developing next generation cell therapies for autoimmune diseases, such as multiple sclerosis, and plans to use AI technologies to accelerate the development, according to the company's CEO. Now, BMS is, of course, not alone. Let's look back. Pfizer opened a drug development center in Chennai in May 2022 and is the firm's first drug development center in Asia. And it focuses on developing small molecules and innovative formulations for the global market. Industry magazine Contract Pharma reported that in October 2022, Roche inaugurated the company's second state-of-the-art Global Analytics and Technology Center of Excellence, or GATE, or GATE in Hyderabad. Roche already has one gate center in Chennai, which works on multiple therapeutic areas. AstraZeneca already has a Clinical Data and Insights division in Bangalore, which it said, or has said, will scale up, according to Contract Pharma. Another global pharma firm to launch an R&D center in India was Merck, We started an R&D excellence center in Bangalore again in September 2022 and a month later Baxter Pharma, the other major, opened its R&D center in Ahmedabad with a focus on pharmaceutical product development. Baxter has about 25 global R&D centers and four in Asia-Pacific, according to Contract Pharma. Now, there are, of course, other examples, but the timing is interesting as we've talked about quite recently. The strengthening or stepping up of R&D coincides with the MNCs existing from the marketplace for drugs. When I say marketplace, I mean the Indian market. The two may be linked or maybe not, but the coincidence exists. Many pharmaceutical majors like Novartis and GSK have been in India for many decades and have only now started pulling out, although their R&D efforts are mostly intact or growing. Novartis, for example, which has once again been pulling out, has been upping its presence via its R&D support center and services in India at one of its three major global development sites in Hyderabad. Novartis has already spent $300 million in this center in the last five years. And it's also setting up a manufacturing plant in India, spending about $50 million to make oral cancer medicines, but for the global market. Elsewhere, Japan's Takeda Pharmaceutical said it will scale up production of its dengue vaccine through a partnership with Indian vaccines maker Biological E, the companies said on Tuesday, reported Reuters. These doses will be available for governments in endemic countries by 2030 as part of their national immunization programs. Biological E will ramp up to a manufacturing capacity of 50 million doses a year, which will take Takeda's efforts to produce 100 million doses per year to within a decade, according to these companies. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at at feedbackatthecore.in and thank you once again for listening.